0: Welcome back, everyone, from all over the galaxy. Laszlo Montgomery here for the sixth time, talking about the history of Taiwan. Did I mention you're listening to the China History Podcast? Still called one of the top China history shows out there. We're continuing on with the takeover of Taiwan by the Japanese following the Treaty of Shimonoseki. Nobody wanted the Japanese there, at first, anyway. The doomed-from-the-start Republic of Taiwan, masterminded by Tang Jing Song and Chiu Feng Jia, that went quickly. The Taiwanese on the island submitted first. Most would adopt a wait-and-see attitude because they were left with little alternative. There was always the option of returning to the mainland, but with the Qing dynasty and its final decade of existence and the sorry state of the nation, eh, Taiwan seemed like the safer bet. This initial period, lasting from 1895 to 1915, saw the Japanese military and police force browbeat all resistors into submission. There was the government of Kodama Gintaro and Goto Shinpei. They whipped the place into shape and firmly established Japanese control down to the individual households. After ten years and all the noticeable improvements in civil service, education, infrastructure, and financial reforms, well, no one could deny Japan had accomplished some very nice things during their time in charge. The Japanese wasted no time carrying out all their grand plans of natural resource extraction. They fought the Camphor Wars for twenty years and battled every native tribe that confronted them. And they... Suffered some substantial losses at the hands of the Aboriginal people when they got too close to them. They weren't the first invaders to meet that fate. So we're still early in the Japanese colonial period on Taiwan, 1895 to 1945. Let's take a look at the Beipu Uprising of November 1907. I forgot to mention this one last time. This particular event was led by the Hakas and Saisiat or Saisia native people. Their tribal lands were in and around the border areas of Shinchu and Miaoli counties. Today, as far as numbers go, the Sai Xia are one of the smallest groups of Taiwan indigenous people. They number only around 5,500 people. There was a recent Formosa Files podcast episode featuring longtime Taiwan resident Toby Openshaw who discussed these Sai Xia people. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. If you're interested in Taiwan, this is a very good podcast show, Formosa Files. This part of Taiwan was also very heavily Hakka in its makeup. Beipu was in the mountainous part of Xinzhou County. In November 1907, one of the local Hakka villagers named Tsai Ching Lin organized a small militia of fellow Hakkas and local Sai Xia tribesmen. They raided a Japanese weapons depot and got their hands on a cache of arms and ammo. With that done, they went on to hunt down Japanese officers and their families, murdering a total of 57 of them. The retribution meted out was brutal and swift. They gathered about 100 hakas, mostly from a single village, and executed them, all the males. This is how it often ended. More of these kinds of incidents of armed local resistance will follow in 1915 and again in 1930. A new governor general arrived on the scene in 1906, surely pleased with the fine condition Kodama Gentaro and Goto Shinpei left the colony. This new governor was Count Sakuma Samata. By that fancy title, you no doubt guessed he was somebody important. Sakuma had fought in the 1874 Taiwan Expedition, where the Japanese delivered some payback to the local Taiwan people for their attack on these Ryukyu sailors and the murder of 54 of them. We looked at that last time in Part 5. He also fought in the Sino-Japanese War. Up to his time, there had only been one. And he served as Taiwan governor till 1915, which is considered the end of the first phase of Japanese control over Taiwan. I think I mentioned that the Japanese were one day going to go climb those mountains and go after these Gaoshan people who had managed to outlast all their antagonizers up till now. One of the upshots of the Beipu Rebellion was at Sakuma Samata. We front-burnered an organized pacification campaign to defang this implacable foe. The precious natural resources were mostly in the mountains And where the Truku people resided, there were camphor trees as far as the eye could see, and they were making it challenging for anyone with a saw to come in and cut them down. Kansakuma had fought in battles against the Atayal, Truku, and one other tribe, the Bunun. The Bunun, or Bunong in Mandarin, they were another indigenous tribe that inhabited the central part of Taiwan. Today, all the Bunong communities combined make them the fourth largest indigenous group in Taiwan. Because of their remoteness and resiliency, they will end up being the last ones the Japanese were able to subdue. Goto Shinpei gets most of the credit for implementing so many of the early reforms up to the time he left office in 1906. Sakuma inherited an administration that worked. He was chosen for this job because of his military experience in general and his past participation in fighting against the Taiwan Aboriginals. In 1913, Sakuma brought the fight to the mountainous East Coast. And here the Japanese faced off for a second time with the Truku people. This very bloody struggle, called the Second Truku War between May and August 1914, was mainly fought in Hualien County. This operation against the Truku was going to be payback for the Japanese lives lost during the Xincheng incident in November 1896. I mentioned this last time in Part 5. And this all came about as a result of, what else? Camphor, of course. Thanks in part to an exhaustive intelligence operation to gather as much information about what he was up against, this time in 1914, Sakuma Samata led his forces to a resounding victory over the truku. The Japanese forces went in with as much as ten times the troop strength of the truku warriors, plus all that Japanese firepower. The truku themselves were also armed to the teeth, but sometimes overwhelming superiority in numbers is tough to beat. Incidentally, Sakuma, 69 years old at the time, was himself injured in this battle and the wounds he suffered would later lead to his death in the following year of 1915. Japanese losses numbered in the hundreds. As for the Truku people, there's no record of how many fell to the Japanese. In an all-too-familiar scene, that's old hat to Aboriginal peoples the world over, the Truku were removed from their lands and dispersed throughout Taiwan. All their weapons were confiscated, their children went Straight into a life of assimilation, and one day Japanization, and Truku culture, language, and all evidence of the life they once lived since time immemorial was strongly discouraged from being practiced. By August 1914, Sakuma declared this special military operation completed. Now, at last, workers could be brought into the mountains to cut down the trees, mine the minerals, and not have to worry about being shot at. Also, let me add, during this moment in history, when the Japanese and truku fighters were going at each other in the mountains of Hualien, over in Sarajevo, Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie were shot and killed, sparking World War I. To offer you a little time stamp here, the following year, in 1915, Sakuma Samata stepped down. In addition to furthering Taiwan's modernization efforts and pacifying the native people with a heavy hand, as we saw, we also remember Count Sakuma Samata as the one who, in 1910, introduced the great American pastime of baseball to Taiwan. When it was first played in Taiwan, the teams were all made up of Japanese officials, policemen, and soldiers. But not long after, in the 1920s, the Taiwanese too were also attracted to this game. Popularity took a bit of a dive following World War II, but Baseball on Taiwan made a huge comeback in the 1950s and 60s. Today, the Taiwanese Little League teams are legendary, winning the Little League Baseball World Series 17 times in 30 appearances going back half a century. If you look on a 500 New Taiwan dollar note, you'll see the team celebrating a World Series victory, throwing their hats up in the air. In addition to introducing baseball to Taiwan, Kansakuma also carried out major construction projects along the east coast of Taiwan, particularly in Hualien and Taroko Gorge. And during Kansakuma's time as governor general, there was a Japan-British exhibition held in 1910 in London. This was on the heels of the renewal of the Anglo-Japanese Alliance, first signed in January 1902. It was a big PR event. Japan was you know, still trying to get in good with the Brits. Anyway, I'm only mentioning this because among the many things displayed by Japan at the exhibition was one showcasing the uh, Taiwanese Aboriginal people. They had some Paiwan people in native dress and displayed them in such a way that, yeah, you know, even back then they received no small amount of criticism and that the demeaning presentation of the native people in this way, it sort of reflected poorly on Japan. The new governor of Taiwan, General Baron Ando Tebi, started off his tenure in May 1915 with one final burst of bloody resistance against the Japanese on Taiwan. This was known as the Dabani Incident, the Jiao Shi Jian. Dabani was the town where the fiercest fighting took place. About a 45-minute drive east of Tainan, this time, another group of Hakka got pushed a little bit too far, and this Dabani incident was led by Yu Ching Fang and Jiang Ding, two elites from a predominantly Hakka part of Taiwan in the southern mountains near Kaohsiung and Tainan. Although many Taiwanese were signing up in droves as far as their acceptance of the new realities, some weren't going quietly in the night. Yu Ching Fang and Jiang Ding had been planning an uprising against the Japanese for many months, and they had gone to nearby aboriginal tribes and and enlisted their support as well. So this was mostly a Hakka indigenous people-led uprising, although it did attract many resistors from the central plains and the north who joined in the affray. Most of the rank-and-file rebels were from the mountains. These people were disaffected, uneducated, superstitious, and all that that entailed. And most also had this predisposition to embrace folk religions that contained elements of superpowers that could be attained, and they were just spoiling for a fight. So, early June 1915, their secret plan got found out, so Yu Qingfang and Jiang Ding had to launch their revolt going out half-cocked. It all started at the Xilai Temple in Tainan, and for this reason, this uprising was also called the Shilai Temple Incident. They raided many police stations around the mountains of Kaohsiung and Tainan counties. Despite the futility of going up against such a powerful trained military force, the Taiwanese resistors put up quite a fight. This whole uprising didn't last long, but it ended up being perhaps the most brutal and destructive in the 20 years of resistance against Japan. Each side went to great lengths to outdo the other in the despicableness of the atrocities committed on each other. The rebels were defeated, of course. Hundreds were killed on both sides. In the end, following the end of hostilities, 1,957 suspected rebels were rounded up. Most of them were put on trial, and about half of them, 915 in total, were executed by the Japanese. To the rebel leadership of Yu Qingfeng and Jiang Ding, this Dabani incident of June 15th was more about Taiwan nationalism and independence than anything else. And all the other fighters who lived and died as a result of this conflict, they all had their own reasons. The Japanese learned a lesson or two from this experience. In response to this incident, they beefed up their security presence by having more police outposts built in the mountainous and rural areas. And believe it or not, after the dust settled following the Dapani incident, the Han Chinese on the island, they threw in the towel as far as fighting back against the Japanese. And because of this willingness to be resigned to their fate, this spelled the end of this 20-year period of non-stop uprisings and acts of defiance. The people of Taiwan adapted to having these new colonialists around and following all their myriad of rules and regulations. In their heart of hearts, the Taiwanese may have harbored secret thoughts regarding how they felt about the Japanese, but for anyone living there, they had to admit never had the island looked this good. And living la vida japonesa, it wasn't all bad. Power projects, railroads, irrigation, and the Japanese were transforming Taiwan into a thoroughly modern place. And then in October 1919, a pretty transformative year over on the mainland, Taiwan got its first civilian governor. Up till then, the one in charge had always been someone from the Japanese military. Now with the eighth governor, Baron Den Kenjirō they had a politician and cabinet minister running the place rather than some general. Just a quick note about Den Kenjiro. He was an industrialist as well and went on to co-found a motorworks company that later became Datsun and then, after 1986, Nissan Motors. Anyway, this uh, second phase of Japanese control of Taiwan lasted from Den Kenjiro's time until 1937. With the first phase of pacification complete, this new period focused its efforts on aggressively implementing social and educational programs throughout the island that encouraged assimilation. This early, no one in Japan had an inkling that all of this nation-building on Taiwan would be inherited by Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist regime. So the social and political changes and the continued investment and building the economy, for the sole benefit of Japan, of course, continued on unabated. I want to say this again because so many people familiar with Taiwan have heard it time and again. Their parents and grandparents who went through this pre-World War II period on Taiwan shared so many nostalgic emotions for those good old days, despite the mixed emotions there were about their colonial masters and the bad blood that existed since... 1895. In the quarter century that Japan had been in control, no one could argue that the place wasn't a model of modernity and efficiency. Count Den, among other things, was also an amateur sinologist. Besides serving as the first civilian governor general, Den Kenjiro is also remembered for a few other things. Marriage between Japanese and Taiwanese, previously forbidden, was made legal, Positions within the Taiwan government started to be filled by local Taiwanese. The harshness of the criminal punishment was eased up. Caning was abolished, for one. And he further built on the achievements of his predecessors in strengthening the educational system. More good-faith efforts were made to strive for inclusivity when it came to the Taiwanese. A number of changes occurred that addressed some of the stress points in the relations. For example, Taiwanese business interests were always getting the short end of the stick whenever it came to matters of competition with Japanese interests. Under Den Kenjiro, this changed, and Taiwan companies had eh, one less thing to worry about. Just as pacification was the main mission from 1895 to 1915, for Den Kenjiro, his overriding mission was assimilation of the Taiwan populace. And through his enlightened civilian rule, by the time his term ended in 1923, he had something to show for himself. One big noteworthy event that happened on Taiwan during Den Kenjiro's time as governor was a state visit by Crown Prince Hirohito, who I share a birthday with. This future emperor of Japan visited Taiwan in April 1923. Welcoming the prince and hosting him during his stay was one of the final things Den had to deal with as governor-general. Also in 1920, Taihoku Prefecture was established, Taipei, Taipeizhou. This consisted of Qilong, New Taipei City, Taipei, and Yilan County. Taipei was called Taihoku City. Den returned to Japan in 1923 following the Great Kanto Earthquake of September 1st. 7.9 in magnitude. Denkenjiro and Goto were both appointed to deal with the aftermath of this most devastating of natural disasters, and they were tasked with overseeing the reconstruction of Tokyo, Yokohama, Chiba, Kanagawa, and Shizuoka. Since antiquity, China has led the world in constructing the most intricate and elaborate timekeeping and astronomical devices. So I wanted to tell you about one luxury watch brand, Atelier Wen. They demonstrate high-quality Chinese design and craftsmanship in a single timepiece. And their watches celebrate Chinese culture and craftsmanship. Atelier Wen works with China's best designers and craftsmen of today to bring their collection of beautiful luxury watches proudly made in China. Atelier Wen's Perception watch model draws from the exquisite geometries found in traditional Chinese architecture. Each dial is individually hand-cut by China's only guilloche master craftsman, Cheng Tsai, who engineered his rose engine machine himself. Due to its complexity, it takes a master craftsman around eight hours to cut one dial. And there were no guilloche machines in China before, and Master Chung had to figure out how to build one without access to any Western prototypes or drawings. Check out AtelierWen.com to view their collections and to learn more about Chinese watchmaking. You can mention the CHP at checkout to let them know we sent you. That's a t e l i e r w e n, dot com to see their impressive collections. The Atelier One Perception watch will make a special gift for yourself or for someone passionate about fine, unique watches. Let me uh, quickly mention something. I haven't said much about this, but Taiwan also had as much of an opium problem as they did on the other side of the strait. It all started to ramp up following the opium wars. Addiction soared, which in turn led to a sharp escalation in trade to supply the increased demand. And this turned opium into a huge revenue source for the Taiwan colonial government. On the eve of the Japanese takeover of Taiwan, about half of all government revenues were derived from opium. The reason why you never hear much about an opium problem in Japan is because it never reached that kind of popularity. The government frowned on it and by this time in the 1890s, early 1900s, everyone knew it had done so much to energize the Qing dynasty's decline. In Taiwan, they made great strides in decreasing the number of registered addicts, but through their regulation of an opium monopoly that they tightly controlled, opium use continued. And starting with the Taiwan Opium Edict of January 21st, 1897, the revenue spigots got turned on. 200,000 licenses were issued to addicts who were allowed to purchase their drugs from government-controlled places. It's no secret. Drugs? It's a big business. And the Japanese colonial government, especially after 1937 when things got serious depended on the revenue derived from opium-related sales and taxes to help fund their war effort. So while they made great strides in controlling opium use on Taiwan, eh, they weren't looking to stamp it out. I don't want to mislead you or lead you to believe that once the last of the anti-Japanese violence settled down, after the Dabani incident, that everything was all happy throughout society, it wasn't, not at all. And just because a lot of elites and landed gentry threw in their lot with the colonialists, well, not everyone felt the way those guys did. And despite all these incredible things the Japanese did to make Taiwan a modern society, the truth was the Taiwanese were treated and lived like second-class citizens in their own homeland. To some, this might not have mattered. But for others, young people, intellectuals, the highly educated... Well, they were part of this whole movement in the 1920s that emerged on Taiwan. And this movement was all about home rule and self-determination through the establishment of a Taiwan parliament. And that kind of thinking was anything but music to the ears of the Japanese colonial government. When they heard that, they knew it was a euphemism for resistance to Japanese colonial rule on Taiwan. Let's look at the two main historical figures and organizations from this time, and through them you can get a feel for how the winds were blowing in Taiwan during the 1920s. These two were Jiang shui and Lin Xian Tang. Jiang shui was born in 1890, which made him five years old when colonial rule began on Taiwan, so he grew up in the system. Jiang was trained as a doctor and graduated from the med school, which later on became part of National Taiwan University. He became a respected figure amongst his colleagues and in his community and sponsored his own salon that was attended by other like-minded intellectuals. And together they discussed all the great issues of the day, especially those that directly affected them. National Taiwan University, known as Tai Da, was founded in 1928 as... Taihoku Imperial University. Lin Xian Tang's people came to Taiwan in 1746 during the period of Qing rule when every 3 years there was an uprising and every 5 a rebellion. And like many who got in on the ground floor, Lin's family became wealthy landowners and they were based in Taichung, like Jiang, Lin Xian Tang was an intellectual and funded newspapers and literary and political journals. And these two Jiang Wei Shui and Lin Shiantang, they're remembered as two of the most significant voices that called for more Taiwanese participation in their governance. No matter how on board you were with everything Japan expected of you, a Taiwanese still had to accept their inferior position in society. These intellectuals weren't rejecting Japan at all. In fact, Lin Xiantang had been an early proponent of assimilation. He just had one condition. Assimilation had to come with equality. Taiwanese shouldn't be forced to ride in the back of the bus. Together, Lin Tang and Jiang Weishui founded two important organizations. First was the TCA in 1921, the Taiwan Cultural Association. a Pretty innocuous sounding name. And it was based in the Dadaocheng district of Taipei. And this organization was all about educating and informing people. They went all over the island giving lectures and spreading their message. In 1921, Governor Den Kenjiro denounced the TCA and other organizations that he insisted disguised themselves as loyal subjects simply asking for a share in home rule. Then remarked that they were actually calling for Taiwan independence. The TCA promoted all kinds of cultural enlightenment on Taiwan, and sponsored all kinds of programs that promoted cultural awareness, their culture, Taiwanese culture. They only had maybe a thousand members, but they were very effective at getting the word out to a fair portion of Taiwan's four million people. Never were they calling for any acts against the Japanese or to reject the colonial government. Jiang and Lin also worked towards the establishment of a Taiwanese parliament, and they petitioned the imperial diet in Tokyo every year, following all the Japanese protocols and rules, faithfully swearing loyalty to the emperor, and despite all of the influential people in Japan who spoke up on their behalf, they couldn't get anywhere. Over fourteen years, fifteen campaigns were launched to lobby the powers in Japan to offer Taiwan some say in their future by allowing for quote a parliament of Taiwan made up of members publicly elected by the residents of Taiwan. End quote. Remember this time, early nineteen twenties, the Big Bang of the May fourth movement had just happened. And as far as a political awakening for many young people and intellectuals in China went, well, you had the same thing happening in Taiwan. You recall from previous CHP episodes, Chinese students and intellectuals were going forth into the world to learn, explore, and discuss new ideas. And not just in China, in Taiwan too. Young people were traveling to Japan in droves to study there and get in the middle of everything that was going on. Just like on the mainland, new journals and societies sprung up in Taiwan, like the Shin Kai or New People's Society, the Shin Minkui. And one of the common threads running through a lot of these writings was an expectation to be treated equal to the Japanese. Naturally, there was quite a lot of pushback from the Japanese side, I'm happy to say these calls by the Taiwanese for their own parliament, home rule, and self-determination, it wasn't met with violence by the Japanese side. But despite that one good thing, they didn't get very far, and all their efforts were met with copious amounts of obfuscation and bureaucratic wrangling. There was more sympathy for the Taiwanese in Japan than there was from the colonial government on Taiwan. They were dead set against any form of power sharing. In the 1920s, the Taiwanese Cultural Association started to veer to the left and more moderate elements, Jiang Weishui included, split away and formed the Taiwanese People's Party, the Taiwan Minchongtang, Taiwan's first political party this Taiwanese People's Party, in a short time, fell victim to factionalism, and more parties would follow into the 1920s and 30s. The Taiwanese People's Party was dissolved four years after it was founded in August 1931, a month before the Mukden incident in Shenyang. Jiang Weishui also died that year, the day before his 41st birthday. So the 1920s on Taiwan. The first generation who had been born under Japanese rule beginning in 1895 had now come of age at a time of profound changes happening over in China, namely the the whole May 4th movement and everything that that spawned. And on Taiwan, people were starting to ask for some of these same rights being openly discussed in all the intellectual centers of East Asia. No one was asking for Japan to leave. Whatever these organizations asked for was always meant to be carried out under the umbrella of Japan. They were just asking for the colonial authorities to lay off the suppression of their Hokkien language, the teaching of Chinese in elementary schools, and other unfair or unreasonable treatment. The hoko system, implemented by Goto Shinpei, had become too invasive and oppressive to everyone's daily life and well-being. There are other aspects of life under Japanese rule that people had just learned to put up with. The corvée, for example, but that's nothing new, and people have been facing that since before Qin Shi Huang's time. All these requests for a Taiwanese parliament and easing up on some rules, they insisted did nothing to diminish the respect and loyalty the people had for the emperor. As the 1930s dawned, Taiwan, politically, was becoming more and more turbulent. Radical elements tired of all the stonewalling would be hounded by the police. The more mainstream elements led by the landed gentry and the more respectable members of society, well, they were mostly spared. Well, Jiang Wei-shui, he wasn't spared for some of the bolder things he was asking for, he found himself behind bars 14 times for crossing lines that the colonial government had drawn in the sand. One Taiwanese politician from the 1980s and 90s called Jiang Weishui Taiwan's Sun Yat-sen. There's a memorial park named after him in Taipei and a Jiang Weishui Memorial Freeway. That's National Freeway 5. There was also one other colorful and memorable person from this time, and this was Xie ta He's remembered as Taiwan's first aviator. Well, in early 1923, while Jiang shui and Lin Xiantang were busy petitioning the Japanese imperial diet, he had a more creative and proactive approach. He flew his plane all the way to Tokyo, and on board he had 20,000 leaflets that enumerated all the abuses and outrages the Japanese colonial government had heaped on the good people of Taiwan, who were all loyal Japanese subjects to the last man and woman, and wen Wenda scattered these leaflets all over the city. Of course, Xia had to lay low for a long time following this daring act, but you can get an idea about how hot passions ran regarding this sensitive matter of demanding a say in the government and having some semblance of self-determination. Well, Let's close things out with one last well-known incident from this time. It happened in 1930, and this was the Musha Incident of October 27th, the Wusha Shirtian. This conflict is called the final one that took place between the indigenous people and the Japanese. There were several indigenous tribes who participated in the Musha Incident, but the main one who had faced down the Japanese were the Sidik, or Saitakudzu, The enmity between the Siddiq and the Japanese began back in 1897 when the Japanese began penetrating the mountains, building roads, and making access convenient to the lands populated by native tribes who didn't want any outsiders. And this is where it all started. 1901, Siddiq warriors rose up and attacked the Japanese and shooed them away from their lands. It was quite a murderous send-off, and the Japanese authorities like they had done before, learned from this experience. So after Sakuma Samata had taken off the velvet glove and changed the tenor of the pacification campaign, it predictably drove some tribes to the brink. By 1930, a lot of blood had been spilled that had left behind all this hatred and resentment. It finally reached a point one day whereby the Siddique leader, Mona Luto, decided to stand up and fight back. What he called for was essentially a suicide mission against their Japanese antagonizers. They knew far in advance the Japanese would ultimately kill them all. But in their culture, fighting was a way of life, and they had warred with their mountain neighbors throughout the ages. The Siddique were headhunters. That is, they would cut off the heads of their opponents in battle and would save them. And as was also their custom... A head, collected in battle, allowed one to have a tattoo applied to their face. And perhaps most important of all, in order for the Sidiq person to cross the so-called rainbow bridge that led to their afterlife, they needed these facial tattoos in order to pass to the other side. But the vice kept getting tighter and tighter with each passing year under the Japanese. Ever since Sakuma's time the Siddiq way of life started to fade like a dying star. So when Moana after an incident where he was terribly insulted by the Japanese due to a classic cultural misunderstanding, when he called for this suicide mission to be carried out, he knew how it was all going to end. And he was okay with it. To see their way of life be salami sliced away by the Japanese was much worse. One must never lose sight of the thousands and thousands of years that these Siddiq and their fellow Austronesian tribesmen populated the island of Taiwan. Though Fujianese and Hakkas from Guangdong had been coming in dribs and drabs since the Song, Yuan, and Ming, their presence in great numbers only went back a few hundred years, and in such a short time, after so long of an existence, just like that, their world as they had known it throughout the millennia, ended. So after the final insult and taking stock of the pitiful condition of his people, here's what Mu Na did. On October 27, 1930, there was this athletic event that was held at an elementary school in Musha. That's today's Ren'ai Township, smack dab in the middle of Nantou County, itself located in the center of Taiwan. And all these Japanese families attending the event, men, women, and children, well, they were ambushed by these Sidiq and other tribesmen. And when it was all over, 134 Japanese were killed. And the gruesomeness of the killing and the mutilations that followed sent a strong message to the Japanese colonial government. The ferociousness of the Japanese response was such that the Sidiq, as a people, were decimated. Less than two months it took, and they chased the Siddiq all around the mountains, capturing every last one of them. And the remaining fighters that had retreated deep into the mountains, the Japanese dropped mustard gas all over those mountain forests. Yeah, it was a complete annihilation and payback. November 28, 1930, Mona Lutau took his own life. No way he was going to allow himself to be taken alive by the Japanese. There's this photograph from this time that kind of encapsulates the whole ugliness of this incident. Anyway, after it was all over and the Japanese had rounded up about 500 Siddiq survivors of the carnage, they had them all confined to a camp and invited the rival tribes of the Siddiq who came into the camp and, on Japanese orders, just slaughtered them all. And every male over 15 years old was decapitated. This was April 25th, 1931. And this photo shows a Japanese officer surrounded by what appears to be about eh, 25, 30 aboriginal people. And in the foreground of the snapshot are about a hundred or so severed heads of Sidiq people. Part of the irony of all this was that Nanto and Hualien counties had by this time become model areas where the Taiwan indigenous people danced and sang and lived happily as subjects of the emperor, despite their inferior position throughout the island. Mona Lutau himself had even been to Japan as part of some Japanese magical mystery tour that was held there to show all the great things Japan had done in Taiwan, among other things. So to go from that to this... It led the Japanese to do some soul-searching about their policies regarding the indigenous people. There would be some course corrections made, and though the Japanese rule on Taiwan would conclude in 15 years, this Musha incident spelled the end of the uprisings. On the eve of everything that was about to happen beginning in 1931, no one was in a position to stand up to the Japanese in battle. But as we're seeing, the Taiwanese couldn't beat Japan in battle, but they could fight City Hall. And the fight wasn't over yet for more representation in the local government. So let's just leave things here for now. If any of you were thinking, boy, this Musha incident would make a great movie, you're in luck. The celebrated John Woo produced this movie that was directed by Wei Da Sheng, and it came out in September 2011. The English title is Warriors of the Rainbow, Sidik Balai, and it's a four-and-a-half-hour filmic dramatization of the Musha incident and these events I've just described. And it's all available to watch on YouTube, and I'm guessing a streaming service or two. So next time we meet again on the avenue, we'll start looking at the 1930s on Taiwan as the countdown to the Marco Polo Bridge incident begins. Believe me, after that happens the clouds start to gather on Taiwan. So, do consider coming back for Part 7. Once again, I invite you to support your humble narrator by going to Patreon or CHP Premium. Either one will get you this long-running family program ad-free, not to mention getting these episodes early. Shoot, my subscribers are already listening to Part 8. Just saying. Well, everyone, let me just close and say how thankful I am to all of you for listening and for being a part of our worldwide CHP community. I love talking to all of you. Feel free to contact me anytime, especially if you'd like to be a presenting sponsor of the show. Okay, let's hit the chicken switch and call it a day. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, California, IA, tempting you to come back again next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.